0: Sports Radio, 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting,
1: fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back. And if you're not used to hearing us here on our sister ESPN station, 1600, um, we're doing some Broncos training camp uh, specials over on The Fan. Uh, So last week and this week, I'm broadcasting at, instead of 9 to 11, 10 to 12 here on the ESPN Sister Station. But I will be back on the fan next week. So if you like what you've heard, you're new to the show, join us every Saturday there from 9 to 11. Let's go to the phones. And joining us, he's a Hall of Fame angler. He's a well-known television personality for the shows he's done and been on. He's a very accomplished angler. Our paths have crossed over many decades and yet he still remains a friend of mine, which we don 't hold against him, mr. Steve Benaz. Good morning Steve
2: <laughs> Good morning Jerry. how are you yeah hey, i 'm
1: doing great great to have you on uh, you 're obviously you 're from Minnesota. People have watched lake commandos we 'll give them a little heads up on that later on. I want to continue i don 't know if you got to listen. We were finishing up with a, a friend of ours, the local guide who also helps manage a tackle store. And the last thing we touched on was the, the supply chain. Now, I know you were out at the big show, ICAST, and we'll probably touch on some of the things you saw out at ICAST because that's the big get-together for the fishing industry. It didn't happen last year because of COVID. But you were there this year interfering, interfacing with most. You were probably interfering too, but interfacing with most of the, the major companies out there. What, what is the feeling about the supply chain out there?
2: I think uh, there's pretty good optimism that things are going to start to uh, you know, loosen up in terms of getting shipment in and getting product available. You know, part of the problem was that the uh, a lot of the tackle was purchased overseas and, and just the shipping side of things. And then with COVID, obviously, you know, stuff that's produced that's, in, you know, stateside, there was just issues with labor and shutdowns because of COVID and things. But it, it I think there's pretty strong optimism that things are going to loosen up a little bit. And I think, too, That as we move away from uh, the pandemic, or hopefully here pretty soon, we're able to, um, people are going to have a lot of the gear they're going to need going forward. And so I think we'll see a little bit less just demand overall, um, you know, from people that are new to the sport that needed rods, reels, lines, lures and everything. But no, it should be, it should loosen up. And 2022 looks pretty good for, for us as anglers in terms of gear.
1: Now, you were at the show meeting, interfacing with a lot of people was there a sense of optimism in the industry? Did you come away with a good feeling?
2: You No, know, what's really interesting is how excited everybody was to be back. Uh, I, I mean, I, I didn't see a frown the whole show. Everybody was, you know, laughing and catching back up and, and looking at the new gear and, and just feeling like, you know, this it's it's been a long two years since uh, we were able to get together. And so I just think that overall, the optimism is, is, was strong and just the, the excitement about you know moving forward was uh, was just you know palpable
1: now you and i talked earlier in the week and you mentioned yeah, we always talk about you know icast the new gear comes out so we're talking about rods and reels and lures and line and new electronics and all those things you said a couple a couple lures kind of jumped out at you they're really not new but they've come out in different shapes and sizes one was the Maxcent, but then another one was the chopo let's start with the chopo why do you like that lure so much
2: you know, the chopo uh, came out, I think, three years ago, and it came out in a, a 120 uh, size, you know, a big bait, and a, a 105 and a 90. And, and they were, uh, I, I, it's grown to be one of those baits that just, for me, is, has been unbelievable. I fished them in South Dakota last week, and we just crushed them. And then uh, in Minnesota, also, when I needed a big fish, we threw a Chapo on, and, and literally three casts later, we had a fish that was pushing almost five pounds and and uh but what was interesting here is is the chopo is a big bait and it's a big mouthful for uh smallmouth bass so uh berkeley came out with a new 75 size this year which is the hook gap the gap between the the two hooks is much smaller it's a, it's a smaller 75 millimeter bait and just an easier bite for smallmouth and we threw that in south dakota um and we had fish up to five and a half on it uh, it's just a a fun bait that's got a different cadence in terms of, uh, you know, that everybody is familiar with those rear prop baits where it goes boop, 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 boop. This is more of a boop, 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 boop. And it was uh, deadly effective. And uh, that was fun. And then they also came out with a new uh, power bait jig, uh, actually, the skirt of the jig itself. These are your typical bass jigs, you know, for skipping and, then, and uh, you know, working as a, a swim bait or a swim jig and stuff like that. It actually has power bait in the skirt which doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is a big deal from the fact that technologically it took years for Berkeley to get to that point. And I had a chance to fish those uh, multiple times in the last few weeks. And I was I was impressed with just the overall design, the hook, but uh, also the number of fish we caught. So those are two baits that really stood out.
1: Well, you know, one, one another, another uh, comment on the Chapo is that, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about some baits or some lures, and it takes a while to learn the presentation and understand the cadence. You almost have to sometimes be in the boat with somebody who's an expert at fishing them, or you have to spend hours practicing with them. The Chapo, you can pick up pretty easily.
2: Yeah, it's one of these baits that uh, I'll tie it straight braid with 30 pound braid. I'll run up on a seven, seven and a half foot rod and a, a fairly quick reel, something in that seven one seven three or even eight oh to one retrieve ratio so you really kind of have the speed to burn it if you want and then uh, make sure your reel's full line and you can cast the thing halfway across a lake and it's a great bait for covering a ton of water it's a very effective bait for big fish but you're right because you can watch it from the start of the cast all the way to the boat uh you really can understand uh you know what speed is working you know what does it look like uh how do you tweak it and you know, so it, it makes it really easy to fish.
1: Now, there's another class of baits, or it's a, a subclass from Berkeley, that you and I, over the last couple of years, well, we both got to test this bait a lot when it was in development. And, you know, I've always been a big fan of the gulp baits and of course power bait forever and there's a difference in the scent between the gulp and the power bait but some of the gulp baits got a little hard to manage they didn't have as much flexibility and you were working with them in that liquid all the time the berkeley yep. came out with kind of a compromise it has the the scent but it has the durability and the flexibility and that's their max scent and uh, they've added to that and i've really fallen in love with that bait
2: you know, it's really proven itself to be a, a dynamite bait. The difference between, a lot of people ask, what's the difference between power bait and power bait max scent? And power bait is a actual it's a taste. So when a fish grabs the lure, say a power worm or, or something, they get a taste that they like and they'll hold on to the bait longer. Max scent is actually designed to to allow a scent trail to distribute through the water. And just yesterday, I was watching MLF up on Lake Champlain, and, and Justin Lucas is putting on a show with the Max Cent, uh Flatworm again. He's in, he was in first place in his B group yesterday by a few pounds, just crushing smallmouths. He did that in uh, South Dakota a few years back, and things. It's it, this Scent is for real. This stuff really does work, um, and if anglers are looking for an edge, especially on smallmouth, it's a, it's a good opportunity to. Uh, you know, test and try it. And they've come out with a new size. The bait that I was throwing actually on the swim jigs the other day was the chigger craw. And he came out with a small three inch chigger craw that it was running on a on a swim jig. And uh, it produced a ton of fish as well. So those are two exciting new shapes in the Maxent line.
1: Well, I tell you what, I was out on the water this week with uh, Dan Swanson. He's an electronics ex- expert from here. He was a former rookie of the year on the professional walleye trail. He's a good friend. And we were actually going over some electronics. We hadn't got out to fish, but he had a drop shot rig rigged up with a four-inch flat nose Mac uh, Power Bite Maxent minnow on it. And I put mm-hmm. that down there, and I put I caught a half a dozen smallmouth in a half an hour, just not even really trying. And what a perfect example because it has that flexibility because you're not moving that drop shot very much, so it's not. It's just subtle action, and it gives a little action. Looks alive, but yet because you're fishing it almost stationary on that drop shot, it had it gives off that scent trail and brings the fish in to examine it. It was just it was almost too easy. <laughs>
2: Ron Linder used to always say, "I want to catch every fish in the lake." <laughs> I, I, I hear that son of it. So it is. It is fun. I do have a story for you. A couple of years back, I was uh, fishing on a clear lake in Minnesota, and we were catching a lot of bass, but no smallmouth, and I dropped an Aquaview camera down to just kind of get a view of what's going on down there, and as soon as the bait or the camera got near the bottom, I saw a three-pound, three-and-a-half-pound smallmouth. Well, I turned to James Hall from Bassmaster Magazine was in the boat with me, and I said, Hey, James, you got to check this out, and when I turned, I dropped the camera, and it slid down to the bottom, and I pick it up, and there's a big puff of you know sediment on the bottom, And as soon as it cleared the sediment, that that smallmouth was like an inch from the camera staring at us. And we're both kind of laughing, like, what happened? So we drifted down a little bit. I dropped it to the bottom again. I lifted up. Now there's two smallmouths. And then did it again and again. I I swear, this is an honest truth. We had six smallmouth bass following the camera. And I looked at our drop shots, and I said, we should be using half-ounce dropouts and drop shot weights, maybe even an ounce, because it's clearly these things are looking for... Disturbance on the bottom, and I've rethought the way I fish drop shots uh from super ultra lightweight small drop, you know, weights to much heavier. And there's times when that produces at a much better rate than going super light.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. You know, and you, it doesn't affect the action of your bait because your bait's above the weight, and you slack in the line affects it. So I think you actually have more control with the heavier weight too.
2: I do too. Yeah, and the other thing I've learned is. To make shorter casts, you know it's so easy to throw that thing out there a mile, but realistically, you want to keep it at a forty five or even to a ninety um, just to make it to keep that bait up off the bottom and it just seems to work better that way, so yeah, drop shots are a lot of fun to fish
1: real quick. we got a couple minutes left um It's been a, a just a difficult summer throughout north america we've had We had cold rainy weather in the beginning, we got a lot of undergrowth, we got a lot of higher water. And then it's been just hot and dry. We've had fires with smoke. Um, what's been happening? A lot of people from here travel to Minnesota to fish. What's going on in your lakes up there?
2: We've had a, 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 just a horrible drought this year. Uh, I, I've been on uh, this past week. We were taping lake commandos, and the whole format of the show is we pick a lake at random and drive up to it and figure it out on camera. And uh, we pulled up to the ramp. We couldn't get the boat off the trailer, so we had to go to a different lake. And that happened two weeks ago, and it happened again last week or this past week. So we had to go to new bodies of water. You know, I've really – it's been interesting to see what's happened to our lakes. Uh, And I think this is drought-related. I'm almost positive. The lake that we live on in the Minneapolis area is typically fairly fertile. And uh, the weed growth would end at about six and a half, seven feet. And, and uh, this year, without with the drought, our lake dropped about a foot and a half, which is an enormous drop for a natural lake. And then two, uh, because there was no runoff, I'm assuming from farm fields or lawns or anything, the lake stayed enormously. I mean, the clarity just quadrupled this summer over a typical summer. And our weed growth then went from, say, six and a half to seven to all the way out to 13 feet. And it made fishing tough because the, the, the bass in particular were able to scatter. They were spread out a lot more. And uh, it's actually made the, the fishing much tougher than I'm used to here. And i run in that in more than one lake this year. And so it's been an interesting study. Um, that I hadn't, I didn't expect, but it's 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 really significant on the, on the challenges in terms of finding numbers of fish.
1: Now you know, now that I live in the mountains and don't live in Minnesota anymore, I'm just going to say it's you, Flatlanders. If the water changes a foot, you're lost. Out here, we go fishing, and it, the spot is well. One spot we talked about today is 11 feet shallower than it was just a few weeks ago. So you get no sympathy here, Panas. So <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what? It I does. Wasn't it, any. it does. It does really happen effect and you know it's it's not only how the fish are acting but what you said you know people tend to fish memories and it's finding the fish is not only different but it can be much more difficult we're out of time steve where can people catch your tv shows
2: we are on the uh, world fishing network now through the end of the year um and then the uh, outdoor channel we air q q2 or q1 and q2 starting again next spring and then you want to t- catch back uh episodes are available on com, and i uh, just like to thank you for the opportunity to be on it uh, i've had the chance to be to come to denver several times and it's a beautiful beautiful place
1: wow you're you're a great resource not only for the show but for the industry and you and i have developed a special friendship it's always great having you on steve Wonderful. Thanks, Terry. You bet. Steve Panaz. Catch him on, you know, just Google Lake Commandos. Uh, you'll enjoy the show. It's a great format. We're going to take time out. and we come back, we're going to change things up. We're going to talk about the mistakes people make when they take their dogs hunting on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 1600 ESPN. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear, locations up and down the front range to serve all your outdoor needs. Joining us from Hideaway Kennels is Ben Garcia. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Hey, first, before I know we want to get into mistakes people make, hunting and things, how's the smoke affecting the dogs?
0: Uh, Well, I would generally say if it's affecting us, it's affecting them. And um, so I don't know about you, but I, out hiking around or out running dogs, you can definitely feel it on the lungs. So I, I would say keep an eye on your dog, watch their breathing, watch for some hacking. And if you have an older dog, probably keep them inside and not get out there in that smoke or wait till it burns off later in the evenings.
1: I'm a little more difficult keeping them hydrated. I know I feel so dry with the smoke.
0: Boy, it is. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's, it was, what me and you always talk about is watching your dogs intake of water. And um, it definitely, the other day I was doing nothing and I was like, I, I feel like I'm dehydrated, you know, and I realized it was from the smoke, you know, and so definitely something to keep an eye on for your dog.
1: Yeah, always your great resource yeah. for those things. Hey, we, we were talking earlier in the week and we're just, right. we're dove season and teal season are almost on us. And then won't be that long after that. It'll be, uh, you know, upland game. We'll get the quail right. and the pheasants a lot of people have been working dogs. Some have gone to people like you and they've had, they've had them trained and properly put in shape. Some of them aren't in shape. We'll talk about some of that too, but some people are, they're getting ready to hunt, but what are the mistakes they make when they do take, especially a new dog out hunting?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I'll break this down into three to two scenarios. Obviously upland that you brought up that dove season's coming up and then waterfowl. Um, I, I love both sports and for me, they're just a blast, but the first one for Upland that I've noticed out of you know twenty plus years being in this industry of guiding hunts and and being on hunts with guys and our folks, um, generally the first thing I see happen is they get to a field, they start opening doors, slamming doors, let the dogs run around, they're hitting the whistle to call the dog back, they don't have any of their gear together, and next thing you know, you hear those birds popping and they're gone. And I, and I always tell everybody, you know, animals live in three different movements: fight, flight, fry or freeze. You know, I mean, they don't have much more than that. So Treat upland hunting like you would if you were elk hunting. I mean, I know when I go elk hunting, it's every step is quiet. Every every To load the gun is quiet. And the same when you're hunting with a dog and upland hunting. So what I like to do is get out of the truck, get everything together, make sure every, my collar's turned on, make sure it's working, put it on my dog, and then let my dog out. Because I've seen it a lot where a dog just gets out and runs over to a bush to go to the bathroom really quick and pheasants or quail blow out of it. So I would really pay attention to, you know, how how you're handling getting out of the truck when you're Fezzah hunting and, um, and and paying attention to those things because you'll scare them off. I mean, they can hear you coming a half mile away. And, and if you're sitting there blowing a whistle, hitting your beeper, you, you just push all your game out right there.
1: What about an upland up hunt? Yeah. What about those dogs? You know, somebody who's new, they've got this loving relationship They've been taking their dog in the field. They may be even playing with it out in the field. Now the right. dog wants to go for a ride. He gets out of the truck. He's all excited. Probably, how do you keep him from barking?
0: Well, that's why I leave him in a crate, to be honest with me. Mean, every year, unfortunately, we get, a, we get a phone call or the email, and I hate opening day in Colorado for this reason. It's, it's where somebody let the dog run away out of the crate, nobody was paying attention to it, and the dog got hit by a car on some farm road out east, you know. <laughs> And um, so that goes along with barking, that goes along with all those behaviors, is, is, is work towards it. You know, generally it's a great question, Terry, and then and, and I didn't get to it, but I'll get to it. The, the, how you prevent barking is if you're training and your dog's barking, eliminate it there. If you let your dog bark when you're training, it's going to do the same thing when you're out on a hunt. No, so,
1: I-, I, mean, I, gen-
0: yeah, I mean, I generally use my e-collar to, to eliminate barking on a dog because I don't want them barking on a hunt
1: well you know that 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 leads to another question too is if you're using an e collar or certain types of right. equipment you really have to have practice and use that equipment and have the dog used to it before you get in the field right
0: absolutely and that was one of my notes I had on here so many times I've been out on a hunter's first hunt with their dog they're excited and and we're kind of going through inventory before we get the dogs out and I'm hey you got your gun you got your ammo yep you got your orange great. Where's your e-collar? And the guy goes, "Oh, let me go get it out of the box." You know, and and that's just where I cringe. You you know, knowing that we're going to go out on this hunt, he hasn't even practiced with it, and he doesn't know how to use the buttons. He doesn't know if it's charged. You know, and that's something you really want to be ahead of um, when you're going out in the field. Is how familiar you are with your equipment, any equipment. I mean, that's fishing, that's hiking, that's hunting. You want to know your equipment.
1: Well, an e-collar too. A lot of that is conditioning, not having to use it when you're hunting because you've conditioned the dog to know that when he has it on, certain behaviors aren't allowed.
0: Right. Or, or reward behaviors. I mean, like we always say, it's just a remote lease. That's all it should be, but they should know every command before you even put the e-collar on them, you know, and and then practicing those things and working through them. And then that was one of the things I wanted to talk about is, is waterfowl hunting. You know I mean? There's been, there's been guns that have gone off in a blind or a pit because the dog's pacing in the blind or a pit. You know, and, and that goes back to your sit and stay work. Not when you're out training. I mean, believe it or not, like if you did the time frame on how long a dog sits and stays on a mark in the water, it, it's probably two minutes. You know, and I always joke that duck hunting's five hours of sitting for five minutes of shooting. So if you're at home watching a game, or if you're in the backyard with your dog that you waterfowl hunt with, make them sit and stay next to you. Make them get used to that. When when Dad's sitting down, I'm right next to him and I don't move. Because that's just going to be his blind manners when he gets into the blind. You know, you're just taking it for longer time, so then the dog understands that when you're hunting in a blind or a pit.
1: Uh, it just makes sense. I mean, people people yeah. need to really think about what kind of activities you're going to do when you're hunting. You know, everybody envisions hunting the moment of the shot, and, right? And they don't. It's just like fishing. We all we all envision setting the hook, but we don't. Right. We don't go through all the other things that lead up to that point. And if you don't do those right, you don't get to the other point. And that's that's what right. happens. Now, what about feeding your dog when you're hunting? Do you feed them on a, right. the same regular basis? Do you change it up?
0: Yeah. So what, what I prefer to do, um, if it's going to be a short little hunt, you know, like we're just going to go, it depends on the hunting. You know, I mean, obviously if um, I'm going to be swimming my dog and it's a duck day and, and it's cold, I generally give them a light breakfast and then feed them right after we're done hunting, after they've done the activity. For me, I like to rebuild that muscle. I like to refeed those calories into the dog after a hard workout. Um, the worst thing you can do is feed your dog a huge breakfast and then try to get him to run. And then he's got all that in there. And what they've found in some studies is they're, they're spending so much calories to digest that food because dog food's gotten so high in calories. But their body's processing that food. That's, that's the energy they could be eating as they go. So I generally like to give a light breakfast in the morning. And then let's say, like, I'm done hunting at 2. Then I'll give them a little bit bigger of a meal or their normal meal just to kind of refeed those calories and get back on it that night. But um, it, it goes along with uh, you do not want to feed your dog halfway through a hunt because, one, is they're overheated already. Their body temperature's up just from activity. And then they start trying to digest those calories you can get into some some problems if they're dehydrated with bloat you can have some twisting in the intestines that things you just really want to watch it and that's and that's every dog food manufacturer gives a really good recommendation on activity of how to feed the dog um, and how to watch i tend to watch weather quite a bit more than some of those companies would tell you so like if it's a super hot day I may go with a little bit lighter of a meal, um, depending on our activity. If it's a cold day, and, and I know I'm going to have that dog in the water if I'm, like, hunting a river for ducks, I, I'm probably going to feed them a little bit more to give them some calories because to, to, they're shivering off the cold, which is burning calories,
2: too.
1: I think the same thing would hold true. A lot of people take their dogs on hikes, and even if you're not hunting, right. the physical activity, I think the same rules would apply, wouldn't they?
0: I would, yeah. I mean, like, we may give, like, a little, you know, like, we feed our dogs with water. You know, I just like to make sure that belly's hydrated with the food. So we may put some water in their food that morning, give them a little bit of time to digest it, you know, before then, like I wouldn't feed at the trailhead. And um, and that's probably the point you're making is I I wouldn't be dumping food to them and then get them up the hill. So like, if you know, it's an hour drive for you to get somewhere to hike, feed them before you go, then they're going to go to the bathroom when you get there, walk them around, you know, make sure your leash is on, make sure you get them to, to go. And then you've ultimately fed that body some calories before they go. So now if you're competing with dogs, sorry, sorry. if you're competing with dogs and you're going to do short window, you know, like when we would compete with dogs, if if we ran at nine o'clock in the morning, we wouldn't feed that morning because we, it was only, you know, it'd be 45 minute run, they'd be going on and then we'd feed them right after. But if you're all day hunting, you want to make sure you're giving those calories to them in the morning and at night.
1: Do you change the diet or just change the, the portion?
0: Uh, I do not change the diet, which is a great question. The last thing you want to do is be, I mean, it's a stressful activity for a dog to even go on a hike, which is a joyful stress, but you're stressing some parts out on their body. So the worst thing you want to do is be switching food depending on what you're hunting. So generally we feed the same food, which is a performance feed throughout the year, some, some trainers will go to a lower-calorie food in the summer because they don't need it because of the heat, and um, they don't want the dogs to get too hot. So we'll, we'll actually keep the same food through, and I recommend that. like Generally, to switch your dog's food is the two- to three-week time frame to switch it. But if you go, like, hey, I'm feeding my dog just the house food, and then I'm going hiking, I better dump some higher-calorie food in there, you're going to have stomach problems either that day or the next day you don't want to deal with on your dog.
1: That's all so. great information. Is it too late if I've got a dog that i want to hunt with you know we still got we got dove right. season coming up but we got pheasants we're still you know we're still a couple months away or even more right. is it too late to get it to you to start training
0: um it, for our program you're yeah probably i mean like we're now training dogs that are going to start hunting in november right and um and uh so it wouldn't be depending on the trainer depending on the dog's level and the, you know i mean if you have a dog with a problem you may be there, but um, it seems as you know, Terry, everybody bought a dog in the last year and a half and and that's flooded the dog trainers being availability too. So, I mean, there's, it's not just us. I mean, we're booking now into 2022 for dogs to train. And and I think a majority of of reputable trainers are doing the same thing because everybody has a dog and everybody wants to be outside with them. And so, and I, and I know the obedience trainers are just as busy right now too, you know,
1: so if if I did get a dog, I haven't been able to get him to a trainer. This is the last question and we're gonna move on. Right. Can I still can I still try to hunt with them? Or should so I, would I recommend so, or should yeah, I wait? Yeah.
0: A, yeah, it's a great question. So here's here's what I always tell people when they get a new puppy. So if they get a new puppy and it's ten weeks old and it's it's November and they're going hunting with the family and they want to take it out hunting. I always recommend if you can't get a train before hunting season. Leave him in the back of the car, leave the windows open, Leave or the truck, leave the, everything so he has air, but leave him in the crate. Um, y- you don't want your dog's first hunt to have a negative experience, and then they never want to hunt again. So what I do, I generally leave them in the car if I have a puppy. If I come back and I've got a rooster and I've got a bird or a duck, I get him out, I get him super excited about it. I may throw him some retrieves and just kind of get him used to being there. But I, I had a dog one time I trained, and um, on its first hunt, it, it was a 15-week-old puppy. They're out walking around. It hit a sticker patch and got cockaburs and furs in its feet. That dog never hunted again because ultimately what it learned is when it went out in the field, it got pain. And, and, and they call it, like, the red stove theory, right? You touch the red stove, it's hot. You learn to never touch it again. So that's just where, like, I like to, if I can't get it for a trainer or they're just in that funky age, leave them in the truck, make sure they've got air, make sure they're cool, but bring them back and throw them a bird at the truck. Pat them up, let them know, hey, The crew's here, everybody's going to pet you, give you a cookie, and you're going to have some retrieves, and then get them with the trainer. Um, We're blessed, and and we're so blessed at Rocky Mountain Roosters that we get a hunt until April. So really, if if you're in the time frame worrying about wild bird season, get it to a trainer, take a break, and come down to a preserve and do a hunt. That's a better solution than trying to hurry something, shortcut it, and then you have a problem.
1: All right, my friend, we are out of time. If people want more information or to book a training session with you, how do they get a hold of you?
0: They can reach us through our webpage at com or find us on Facebook under Hideaway Kennels.
1: All right. Thank you. And I will, um, by the way, I will put this up on our Facebook page. And, uh, Ben, as, as always, we just love having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you
0: so much, Terry. Have a great weekend.
1: You bet. If you're a dog owner, you want more about this information, I'll put all this on um, on our Facebook page, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to talk to the folks at Colorado Clay's About the state of ammunition availability and getting ready for the upcoming hunting seasons. On Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on the fan. If you like some of what you're hearing on the show, tune in and join us every Saturday morning or follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. A lot of the content on this show will end up podcast. We'll link to it there. Plus, we give up-to-date fishing reports. We give information on a lot of activities in the outdoors, just what's going on. It's a good place to be if you're an outdoor enthusiast. Let's go to the phones. And joining us, one of our favorite contributors, especially this time of the year, jr pierce from colorado clays good morning jr
3: hello and good morning to you terry
1: you know i was thinking specifically about the way you were going to jump on me now because i have two two notes written on my my sheet here and one says doves and one says ammo well that's a clash for me immediately because because i need a lot of ammo when i dove hunt and we're in a year when ammo could be an issue isn't it
3: absolutely terry a lot of a lot of points we can cover reference that Fortunately, of course, Colorado Clays has been able to keep the, most of the popular calibers and gauges of ammo. So uh, if you have trouble finding it, but you need to do some practice, Terry, uh, come to Colorado Clays. We do have ammo for our customers to use at the
2: range.
1: You know, and it, it, people go, well, I couldn't find the shot size I normally shoot. I couldn't find the same brand I usually shoot. I couldn't find a rifle uh, cartridge that I normally big hunt, game hunt with, which you uh, uh, really need to be working on right now. But one in particular, we'll talk about those more, but one in particular that jumps out at me, we're not very far from muzzleloader season, and people are having trouble finding the same powder and the same bullets. And it changes the trajectory so much in muzzle loading, doesn't it?
3: Well, Terry, and that's true with everything. And I think I should probably kind of lead into this with uh, uh, a few facts here so of course having recently been voted Colorado's number one outdoor shooting facility and and being Colorado's premier public shooting facility for the last 25 years Uh, We literally welcome tens of thousands of firearms enthusiasts from across Colorado and, and around the nation to our range every year. And of course, these folks are of all skill levels from beginner to expert using all types of firearms, you know, pistols, rifles, shotguns, black powder, like you said, and so forth. And they're using these firearms for a wide variety of applications, whether it's You know, just simply coming to the range for a day of target shooting, maybe practicing for home defense or concealed carry. Uh, We do a lot of practice for people competing in tournaments or competitions here, uh, qualifying for law enforcement, military, and, of course, like you said, prepping for the hunting from everything from doves to big game. And although we know there are many variables to improving accuracy, uh, ranging from individual technique to the type of gun, barrel length, you know, rifling twist rates, sights and optics, choke selection, etc. oftentimes one of the most drastic changes to overall accuracy can be achieved by simply experimenting with different ammunition types, uh, weights and velocities, until you find the most accurate load for you, your gun, and, of course, your intended uses. But with the worldwide ammunition shortage still upon us and, Of course, hunting season's approaching fast. We're starting to see a few things here, Terry, that um, are are interesting in the fact that people are are unable to find the ammo they want, or they're being forced to use whatever is available to them. And the perfect example of what you were talking about there, Terry, had a muzzleloader coming out, getting ready for season last week. Uh, Came out, had the same powder, he was good on everything, but the projectiles even though they were the same weight, had some different manufacturers. We were able to get his gun on target at 100 yards. He ran out of his previous bullet and decided to just finish off with a half box of whatever he had, Uh, same weight, everything. And just changing one manufacturer to the next literally moved his point of impact six inches to the left. And it was a good tight group to the left. But it just goes to show, regardless of what type of gun or what you're doing, um, there are definitely some changes in accuracy from changing ammo. And I, I think the moral there, Terry, is to be sure you finish your sight in session with the ammo you intend to use or the ammo you are forced to hunt with so that you have the confidence to make that clean, ethical harvest of whatever game you're pursuing.
1: No, I couldn't agree more. And first of all, we should emphasize before i make a couple other points that uh colorado clays is muzzle loader friendly and kind of describe how a muzzle loader can practice there because you have a really open system
3: yeah our open air system terry is extremely friendly to muzzle loaders and it's very comfortable to shoot in uh we have a covered shooting area with padded benches um lights radiant heat everything you need in the shooting area but downrange Rather than a closed-in building, we have an open-air design, meaning there's no roof, we just have baffles. And what that does is allow you to practice in not not only open light, but uh, open airflow. So those loaders have a tendency to make a little bit of smoke, but that smoke just dissipates and disappears at the Colorado, range, Colorado clays range. And depending on what type of hunting you're planning on, we do have prone- Sitting and standing shooting practice options available. So, really, there's no better place to side in than Colorado Clays if you have a muzzle loader.
1: Well, now you also have a little starter kit for muzzle loading, and my thoughts would be because you include some projectiles, I think you can tell me what's in it. But if I can't find enough ammunition to get in all my practice, get my muzzle loader on paper where I want it, and then finish, like you said, so critically with at least a few shots of what I'm going to hunt with, could I start with that kit and what's in it and then switch just to the last few shots?
3: Yeah, and you know, Terry, this was the brainstorm of one of our uh, professional RSOs we have here at Colorado Clays. And the whole idea was to take these guns. A lot of folks haven't shot for a while. A lot of folks need to start over, have different powders, what have you. So get this um, starter pack available at Colorado Clay's for just $10. It gives you some 50 caliber balls, some patches, and uh, everything you need. I believe he's even got some primers in there. So we will get this gun on paper using that cheap starter kit. Once we have it to where it is on paper at the ranges you'll be hunting, then you can take the loads that you prefer, the projectiles, and uh, dial it in because, as we said, one load to the next can change drastically. So get the thing to where you can work with it, and then we can finalize it with the load you intend to hunt with.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. Let's go through a couple other scenarios, too. Let's just say I'm sighting in my rifle and I'm, you know, I'm. I'm comfortable at 200 yards with my rifle, but I'm not going to tell anybody what their comfort level should be. Make sure that you really are comfortable. Don't take shots outside of your ability. It's not fair to the animal. But I come to the, you know, I've got I've got a box of of, uh, of the ammo, ammunition I normally hunt with that I've normally sighted in with. Is it better for me, or can you tell, or is it just all over the board, whether if I have to buy some more to get the same, grain weight for that bullet or is it better for me but a different manufacturer or stay with a different manufacturer and may change the bullet a little what typically happens
3: well again terry and i think you you kind of summed it up there uh and we're seeing this right now a lot of folks might have a half a box left over from last year they may have found something it's not what they're used to my recommendation and what our people are doing here come out do some three shot groups with some of each leaving yourself some to work with find that most accurate load and then finish dialing your gun in with that load and leave yourself enough to hunt with as far as the preference let the gun decide uh which is the preferred load and another thing like you said terry is um sometimes we're not going to be able to do just what we want here in 2021 understand your limitations and adjust the range of your shot in the field to meet your comfort level and, again, uh, to keep that harvest ethical. So that's really the, the moral of the story. I think more and more people are seeing now how drastic um, of a change can uh, come from just changing your ammo. And uh, I, I really am glad to see people taking that to heart and uh, – definitely encourage them to come out and do a session and find out what works in their equipment.
1: Two more points, and one is you talked about self-defense, concealed carry. Um, as you know, I do a lot of handgun shooting, and so does Karen. And she's almost as good as I am. You knew that, right?
3: <laughs> Still.
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, she makes me look bad. But one of the things, and Karen and I run into this all the time, You, we buy, you know, we we buy jacketed shells for practice. They're cheaper. We don't need them to expand. And we can shoot through a lot of them. But and but yet, when we load the gun for self-defense, we put in specific self-defense loads. I think enough people don't buy enough self-defense loads that occasionally you have to run those through your gun for two reasons. One is, does your gun function well with it? Just that change in shell, you don't want your self-defense gun jamming because of a different ammunition. And two it's going to hit a different impact.
3: Absolutely, Terry. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And we do see this. uh, Even pistols, even short barrels, have uh, loads that will be inherently more accurate. Uh, Home defense rounds are built and composed a certain way for a reason, but definitely verify that the load you are planning to use for home defense has the same points of aim and impact as your practice rounds. And there's so many variables, uh, form and technique with a pistol can change things so much, too. And making adjustments to your form, your technique, and practicing and repeating that over and over is also a good way to ensure accuracy, muscle memory. And uh, when, when the time comes that you do need to use that firearm, uh, there's no doubt that you're able to do it, do it safely and
1: confidently. Last point, I want to spend a couple minutes on, and that's shotgunners. We got dove season coming up, and you and I always joke about it. I say it's a it's a conspiracy to sell ammunition because no one can hit a dove anyway. But but you know we joke about it. But it is a great sport, and it's a wonderful sport. But we've got dove, we've got teal, we've got waterfall, we've got upland game coming. People are worried about ammunition, so should I approach it by maybe coming to Colorado Clays and buying a few shells of different types of shot? And maybe try the patterning board and then trying them. Tell Because if I can't get what I want, how do I decide what I should go to?
3: Yeah, well, if you found some ammunition, Terry, you're not sure uh, if it's going to work well with your gun and your choke. I And I always encourage time on the pattern board. So, yes, you can see uh, what choke provides, what diameter of pattern at different yardages, pattern density, etc. But the most common problem I see with people going out uh, – Feel like they should be right on and they're not hitting anything is if they have a new gun they made an adjustment to the gun or made a, an ammo change is that their point of aim and point of impact are so far off and they don't realize it so first thing we want to verify with that shotgun is that when you come up in your stance have your sight picture the bead is where it needs to be that your pattern is centered over your target and it, it's just mind-boggling how many times I see guns shooting up to a full pattern high or off to a side. And gun fit is a big factor that can be adjusted on a lot of the new modern guns. And then of course, uh, most people just really don't know at 30 yards with an improved cylinder and the load they're using, what the diameter of their pattern is and the density. So at the very least, it's interesting to see that. So when you're out on the hunt, it gives you an idea what you're dealing with and it can actually improve your confidence knowing what's going on out beyond your barrel.
1: All right, my friend, we are running out of time. If people need to find Colorado Clays or want to talk to you more about these subjects, how do they do that?
3: Well, please give us a call, 303-659-7117, or go to the website, coloradoclays.com, leave us a message, take a virtual tour of the facility, and uh, by all means, plan a trip out, and uh, let's get ready for season.
1: All right, my friend, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thank you, oh, and, and my phone should ring about a bass fishing trip, I think.
3: Yeah. Take it off. Vibrate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you, JR. Goodbye, Jerry. You bet. Great people. Just gotten to know them so well. Great facility. Great people. And I'll tell you, folks, this ammunition shortage is real. Um, if you're planning on hunting anything this fall... Make sure you can get enough of what you're going to hunt with to practice with and dial in your gun. It will make a huge difference. And, you know, you can't just don't don't leave yourself having to grab something on the fly and hope that it works for you. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors.